Portland, Oregon has an incredibly deep community of makers of music-related gear. In fact, you could put together an entire stage setup and backline just by using instruments and gear made in Portland. What connects these makers seems to be both a love of music and the fact that they were all kitchen table tinkerers first. Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. Support for the future of what comes from Merch Table. With over 15 years of experience in merchandising, screen printing, tour support, and online fulfillment, Merch Table partners with artists and labels looking to jumpstart their business. Visit merchtable.com to learn more and open a store today. Today, we talk to three makers of musical equipment about how they got started in their fields. It's all coming up on The Future of What. Support for the future of what comes from Sound Exchange. You're listening to the future of what. I'm talking to Philip Graham of Ear Trumpet Labs. Philip, welcome to the future of what. I'm very happy to be here. Yeah. So today we are talking about the Portland gear scene. Basically, there's all sorts of gear manufacturers here in Portland, and that's not something that you really think about when you think about a music ecosystem. Mm-hmm. You know, I think people give gear manufacturer probably, you know, less than a quarter of a tenth of a percent <laughs> in their brains. So how did you come to start Ear Trumpet Labs? Well, I started it more a personal journey than necessarily a musical one or a music scene related one. I'm not really a musician. I'm kind of a terrible front porch guitar player. But I kind of was keeping my sanity from my day job as a programmer by tinkering with a whole bunch of different things in the basement every night. just And so being a bad guitar player, I was a lot more interested in building amps, for instance, than mm-hmm. actually playing guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and so having done a bunch of that stuff, my daughter is a songwriter. And at the point when she got serious and started thinking about recording some stuff, then that was when I started looking into microphones and doing the research on like, how do you build these? So I just started as a tinkerer, really, that built something kind of interesting because I was just using bits and parts and pieces from my basement and Mm -hmm. my garage. Right. You know, that's kind of where it started. But then because they looked pretty weird, a number of musician friends that I had in town saw them and were like, oh, that would, is it possible to use that live? Like, that looks awesome. So I started making them as studio mics. But because of that interest, because of the, the way they looked, I kind of redesigned them a little bit to be good high-performance live microphones. And that, you know, totally just came from musicians that I knew wow. making, making that suggestion. And that, you know, that's really where I sort of stumbled into the niche that we have. Right. What is it that you like about, I mean, what is it that you find interesting about creating microphones? Oh, wow. There's endlessly interesting <laughs> things about it. The The audio engineering problems part of it are just always fascinating and always a, a challenge. It's, you know, when you're dealing with uh, turning physical sound into electrical signals, there's just a whole world of weird physics that nobody really understands exactly and the, and the sort of what makes a good sound versus a bad one really comes down to a lot of trial and error and experimentation and a lot of listening. 
So that part of it is just fascinating and always interesting. And now, you know, I also have uh, the the job of trying to make these as a in production. So every design has to also be thought of as like not just something I can pull off once, but something that's reasonable to craft over and over again and you know right. teach somebody else to make. And that whole part of the job is really kind of more engrossing at this point than anything. The mass sort of, ma- I mean, I say mass production. It's not like Ford making, I'm sure you don't have the <laughs> Ford plant in your yeah, studio. Yeah, it's all, it's all still craft building. You know, we've got like four people helping with the production and they're pretty much all built the way that I built the first ones mm-hmm. in the basement, just that kind of tinkery way. Right. But that's awesome because that's another, I, I always like talking on this program about unexpected jobs you can have in the music industry. This sounds like one that was genuinely unexpected. It sort of came upon you, <laughs> not in a way that you were thinking yeah, you would exactly. do. And, and now you look, you employ four people. That's pretty cool. Yes. And they are all musicians. I look for that because obviously they're going to be kind of passionate and interested in this thing that we're doing. Mm-hmm. And we do a lot to you know, to sort of support that. We keep a four-day work week for everybody, specifically because they've all got other stuff going on and just to keep their lives sane. Yeah, that kind of thing. And for all of them, yeah, this is definitely something that you wouldn't necessarily think you could get as a job that's, you know, music-related, but it's there. But it's also sort of crafty makery, which is another sort of Portland feature. We mm-hmm. have this big maker community here. Yeah, and I think that's the thing about the music equipment scene in Portland is it is all pretty small scale. There aren't any, well, the biggest manufacturer we have is that there's another microphone maker in town. Audix is big, but I can't think of another one that would come anywhere near that scale. Mm-hmm. That's really sort of industrial. It's mostly a community of little hand builders. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of, there's some really great pedal builders and Some of those, you know, like me, have expanded to the point where they hire some other people and are nationally known and distributed and, you know, getting stuff out there. But for the most part, yeah, they're no more than 10 people. Right. You know, building stuff in a pretty craft-oriented kind of way. Right. So where's your biggest market at this point? Wow. I mean, we're we're worldwide, but our definitely our biggest market is is sort of a genre one of bluegrass. Mm. So... We're very popular in the bluegrass world just because of the the sort of specific niche that we fill of having condenser mics that work really well live. And that's, it's really good for acoustic music and particularly where you want to have, you know, sort of multiple sources gathered around one mic in a live performance. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of our real strength. Sort of connecting with that. I mean, also really came from connections that I had in the Portland music scene too. Caleb Clowder and Foghorn String Band are based here in Portland, and they're they're not really bluegrass. They're more sort of old-time fiddle tune string band, kind of square dance kind of band, but they're one of the best in the country at mm-hmm. that, and Portland is a really sort of hotbed for that old-time scene. So early on, I kind of connected with that scene, and then Foghorn took one of my first mics out on the road with them, and that you know, that was where I really saw like, oh, this, these are the musicians that are the right fit mm-hmm. for what I'm doing. And then it sort of crossed over into bluegrass because those scenes overlap a lot. Gotcha. Um, and word kind of spread there. And I see that you've also got some instrument mics, which 
probably is, you know, if you're going to have stringed instruments that need mm-hmm. miking, mm-hmm. that's going to be more yeah. what you guys do rather than, it's going to yeah. be more in the bluegrass, Americana, exactly. con- sort of folky yeah. country yeah. scene rather than rock. Not so much rock, se. yeah. Although, you know, I mean, it's weird. You kind of cross over, you know, at one of our models, it turns out a bunch of pretty big live engineers on the rock and roll side are just love on guitar amps. So Ooh. they're starting to get picked up a lot as amp mics. Oh, interesting. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. See, I love it. I love it when things are sort of unexpected and it just mm-hmm. expands. Do you ever get worried that you're going to get too many orders? <laughs> yes. We've been really lucky in the pace of growth. We did grow a whole bunch. A couple of years ago, we had two years in a row where we like doubled and that was a little stressful to manage, and I'm actually kind of glad that we didn't have a third. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, as long as it doesn't go absolutely nuts, I mean, and, and even then, I guess that would be a problem worth having, I guess. <laughs> I'd find ways to cope. <laughs> right. But it's always been, all the way through, we've been able to, like, actually get enough made to have on the shelf to ship orders that are coming in that week and we went through long stretches where it was sort of just barely really scrambling to try and keep up but we've kind of always managed it and it's you know even when we knew we were growing it was pretty steady month over month and so we were able to be like all right it's definitely time to bring somebody else in you know and that's at this point it's just getting it's just getting more people and thankfully there are a lot of musicians (laughs) in town (laughs) that have expressed an interest in working for me, or, or similar kinds of manufacturers. Like, it's kind of an ideal musician's job. So I, I think we kind of have a, a pretty deep pool of employees if we need them. Yeah, I love that. I mean, I always think about, you know, Cascade Record Pressing moved here not that long ago. And mm-hmm. I think they're up to 50 employees or something now. They've got a ton of people, and a lot of those people are musicians. A lot yep. of people are, you know, just rabid music lovers. But it's it's so nice to see an industry moving into an area and then giving people jobs. Yeah. I know at least some of the bandmates of some of my employees are, are working at Cascade. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. It's It really does feel like part of the, I mean, it's where it really feels like an ecosystem is that kind of cross-pollination between like people actually performing and an engineer, live engineers, some of the earliest people that helped me out were live engineers in town, mm-hmm. even more than musicians. And that would sort of took an interest in what I was doing and kind of took me under their wing like early on when I, I don't really come from a sound engineering background. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot I needed to learn. And there were a couple of live engineers that offered to have me just shadow them at their job for, oh, wow. you know, for a little while. And so they're like, yeah, as you're trying to sell people on you know like using a condenser live you should come spend some time and like see what we what we go through wow you know on a daily basis and why a lot of engineers are gonna give you a pretty skeptical reception when you're bringing anything new yeah to what they're doing wow i bet that was really really helpful it was yeah yeah it was amazing and in general like the reception from the portland community as a whole was phenomenal like super early on I mean, first off, doing something as weird as, you know, hand-building microphones in your basement out of, you know, plumbing parts, which is what <laughs> <laughs> plumbing and, and kitchen supplies and stuff. You know, Portland was the place where everybody thought that was a cool idea. Nobody thought that that was just 
right? Too Crazy. weird. Yeah, yeah, too weird. But you know, there were there were some engineers and musicians. I mean, a lot of engineers are also musicians, but some in particular that like as soon as they saw them were like, "This is awesome," and and sent you know like email blasts to everybody that they knew in in town, like, "Hey, there's this new company making these really cool things. Like, you should check them out." That was how a lot of people ended up hearing about me. And that was how I hooked up with Larry Crane at Jackpot and, um, and Tape Op and, mm-hmm. you know, got some of our first reviews and stuff like that. Cool. So, yeah. Yeah. That's great. Speaking of the community, let's talk a little bit about Music Portland. This is a new nonprofit advocacy group for the music industry in Portland that you just, you just joined the board. Yes, I did. <laughs> with with me, for yep. full disclosure, we're on the board together. <laughs> so what do you think the need is in this town? I mean, it sounds like, you know, your own story shows that there's a pretty good community of music makers and players in this town. Mm-hmm. What do you think Music Portland is going to help with? Well, I think the real, the baseline need that the community, every part of it needs is a reasonable living and working situation for musicians, for there to be as many working musicians in this town as possible. That's kind of what it comes down to. And although you might, as a manufacturer, eh, maybe that doesn't seem like a direct line to, you know, what I need, but I was just saying, I mean, all my employees are musicians. That's the, the musicians in town, you know, helped me tremendously getting this started and I think that's true of any other you know like small music related business and uh, you know so the the big danger in Portland as in so many other towns is that it's just not tenable anymore for musicians to live here if mm-hmm. there aren't venues for them to play in and right. if there's nowhere affordable to live and nowhere affordable to get rehearsal space right there's just a huge ripple effect through a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily realize, you wouldn't necessarily think are that dependent on, oh, another venue closed. Well, you know. Big deal. Big deal. Right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, you know, from, you know, licensing companies that are here, you know, I mean, in theory, they could maybe be okay. But, uh, like, clearly they're dependent on having a bunch of musicians in town that, you know, probably working there and, you know, are their main clients. Right. So I think that's really the the main challenge that that I see. And so the you know all the activities that Music Portland is talking about one way or another I think come down to that to like keeping a livable situation for as many musicians as possible. Absolutely. No, I mean it's completely true. I mean, I lived through that in New York City because mm. when I played in bands in New York in the 90s, you know, we played in practice spaces on the Lower East Side which just a few years later became co-op buildings that were completely refurbished. And, you know, I can't, I couldn't even afford the rent, you know, mm-hmm. today, if it was the last thing I could, <laughs> I mean, I couldn't possibly afford to live there. Yeah. And it drove the music business out of the Lower East Side of Manhattan and into Brooklyn and then farther into Brooklyn and then farther into Brooklyn. And now, mm-hmm. you know, people are telling me that the music scene is in Bushwick, which is really funny because I grew up in New York and no one, you know, the, there was no music scene in Bushwick when yeah. I was growing up. Yeah. That's not where things were happening. Anyway. <laughs> and and then, of course, that also creates another problem because the people who lived in, who used to be able to afford to live in Bushwick now can't live there. 
because they're being pushed out by all these, you know, white indie rockers yeah. from Manhattan and Park Slope <laughs> and Williamsburg. So, yeah, I mean, it creates a ripple effect in a very serious way. And mm-hmm. we want to try to keep that from happening to Portland significantly and as well as making people aware of all the stuff that is going on in Portland. Yeah. And I think that's what I like about the approach that we're taking is is really trying to connect the dots for a lot of the people that benefit from there being an active music culture scene here, not just directly, not just directly music businesses like me, but all the corporations that are moving here and are moving their headquarters, even from the suburbs into town, Mm -hmm. specifically because that's like, yeah, we need to hire young people. We have to be in town. Well, the reason that they want to be here is because it's a music town Mm -hmm. or at least a cultural town. And music is, is really the, probably the biggest part of that. You know, and so there are people and companies that are benefiting and profiting from all of that. And so, you know, I think trying to trying to find ways to get them to give back a little bit instead of just coming in and making everything expensive and then making it die. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. Be aware of how big your footprints are, you know. Exactly. Uh, and what you're displacing. When you come in. Exactly. And on that note, Philip Graham of Ear Trumpet Labs, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? It was a pleasure, Portia. Thanks. The code won't crack If your cover was blown You do what you need To take what you already own Your praises were sung but the mute can't sing You do what you please And reply What all could it bring No, oh, I'm sweet when I say I don't mean to cry Don't mind me asking But why they're disguised The conversation's Increasingly cross When you ask How much does that cost Phone won't whine if the king don't bitch. Your skin is crawling, crawling. Need his thumbs to scratch that itch. Oh, I'm sweet when I say I don't mean to cry. Don't mind me asking, but why the disguise? The conversation's increasing because as I find.
that was Don't Mean to Pry by Horse Feathers. If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. Follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW and subscribe to our newsletter to find out what's coming up next. You're listening to The Future of What? I'm talking to Saul Cole of the Cole Guitar Company. Welcome to The Future of What, Saul. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm so happy to have you. Yeah. So this is very exciting to talk to you. You started making guitars back in 1986. Yeah. Yeah. I have always been a maker of things. Mm -hmm. When all my friends were out playing sports and stuff like that, I was by myself content to build things out of wood and wire and paper and tape and all this kind of thing. And when I went to college, they suggest that you take survey courses of everything, a little math, a little business, a little this and that. And some of those classes were art classes. And I made a discovery that I had been making art all along. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, I had been playing guitar and I'd picked up guitar when I was 12. And I just kind of put these things together in school. My major was in sculpture, you know, so... I had access to a great wood shop and a metal shop and this kind of thing. And my love of music and my love of making things kind of put, I put these things together. Wow. And here I am so many years later. That's (laughs) truly amazing. This episode is about the amazing wealth that we have in Portland of makers who are making musical instruments and musical equipment. Yeah. Pedal makers, microphone makers, guitar makers, Amplifier makers. Synth makers, Synth even. Makers. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. Are you familiar with Music Portland? Have you heard about that yet? No. What is that? Music Portland is a new advocacy group for the music business and industry in Portland. Okay. And one of the things that we've been talking about at Music Portland is the fact that we can actually put together a whole backline oh, of nice. stuff that's just created right here in Portland. I'd love to take part of that. That, that would be amazing, good. right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, wouldn't that be yeah. cool? And we can send it on the road with people. We can send it to festivals. You know, we've been thinking about all sorts of things we could do with that. That's fantastic. I have a couple of customers who they have a full Portland rig, so mm-hmm. they have a a Benson amplifier and they have a coal guitar and you know it's pretty funny. That's so cool. There's cable makers in this town too, you know. Wow. Um, yeah. It's a it's just as there are a million artists and musicians here, there's also musical instrument makers too. So fantastic. Yeah. I noticed on your website that you do direct sales and then you do some very select shops. You sell through some select shops. That's right. Yeah. I tend to be really, really scattered. I want to make everything. I want to make <laughs> mandolins, banjos, guitars, guitarons, what, whatever. I, I'm really excited about everything. The problem with that is it's really hard for people to figure out what you are and what you do or what you know who you are. So my partner kind of tones it down brings me into a very specific model, mm-hmm. which we market through some really, really good dealers. So all of those are very specific. The dealer can specify color, for example, and real simple changes. But for the most part, it's a, des- a guitar that I designed. And then for custom stuff, people come direct to me. Right. You know, so, and there the sky's the limit, you know, and I can get my freak on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so that's what it is. It's, you know, a half dozen dealers in the U.S. that order specific models and then just the weirdo stuff that people dream. Well, dream up. <laughs> I know you have Lee Ronaldo as a customer, which is Lee, yeah. very cool. Yeah. I mean, talk about weirdo <laughs> guitar stuff. It's perfect. Been, I met him right after all their equipment was stolen. And right. so they, they had to replace everything really fast. Oh, wow. And Nick Close was was his personal guitar tech at that point, And he found me and said, hey, can you put together a couple instruments for Lee? 
you know, and this is the budget and this is what he likes. And that developed a, a lifelong friendship. And so we're, I actually have some instruments underway for him now. Wow. You know, so Lee, uh, Elliot Sharp, Isaac Brock, Mary Timoney. Yeah. All these just amazing artists. That's one thing that's really, really nice is that I'm creating tools for these people to fully realize their vision, you know, to take them to the, to the next place. And, and that's really, really satisfying. So I get to be in my quiet space, usually by myself. I, I do have a couple employees, but I get to be by myself, be my introverted and shy person and make my stuff. And then it goes out into the world and helps artists achieve something higher. So it's extremely satisfying. That is really satisfying. Yeah. It's also really interesting because guitars are so personal. Yeah. And it's such a personal thing for a person who plays the guitar. Very and much. the fact that you actually made it with your own hands, you know? Yeah. I've heard painters talk about just pushing paint around on a canvas. It's really satisfying. It's a, there's something really nice about that. And I feel the same way about gluing stuff together, you know, <laughs> cutting wood up and, and that kind of thing. And, and then to see it actually grow into something that helps other people. You know, I get, I get to hear these records. I get to see them on stage. It's really a satisfying career. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I have that a little bit with running a label, you know, getting to put out oh, yeah. some records that then have great meaning to people. That makes me feel good. Like we helped in a tiny way. Yeah. You know, achieve sure. that, which is nice. We did an episode in which we talked to a couple ladies from She Shreds magazine oh, yeah. about this Fender study that was done last year where they found that over 50% of new buyers of guitars were women. Right. Did you hear about that? I did, yeah. In your own experience over the last 30 years of doing this, have you seen more and more women coming to guitar buying? I think so. Yeah, I have. I, I'm doing a very, very specific kind of thing. And for a long time, it was just these old, I mean, I look at my client list from way back when it was basically a bunch of older jazz guys, you know, <laughs> other than Lee and, and right. that kind of stuff, but had these. And over the last couple of decades, it's changed to a younger, you know, varied base. So I'm really excited about that. You know, right now, Mary Timoney's out there playing one of my guitars, and we're building one for Courtney Barnett. Eleanor Friedberger was playing one for a while. We're building her another one. So we do our best to get the instrument out to anybody who's interesting and, and has a has an interest in what we do. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think also, I mean, it's a little bit different because I think that study was looking specifically at young people and probably buying like a lower price point guitar, like your first guitar, whereas your guitars seem to be a little bit more, especially the customs They're are going to be specialized. Yeah. Special, yeah. Yeah. We're, we're not really mass producing anything. No, definitely you know? not. <laughs> yeah. So if we hit 70 guitars a year, that's a big year for us. Oh, you know? wow. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's myself in the shop all the time. And then I have a partner or employee, Matt Proctor. He's a visual artist. He also makes his own line of guitars. He comes in several days of the week. My business partner, Gary Hustwit, is in New York and he handles all the sales and all the other marketing and all that kind of stuff. So I can kind of just focus on what I do well and not have to worry about the biz part. You know? Right. There's a couple other guys that come in when I have a, a trade show, if I'm doing NAM or some other big show where I have to have a lot of work. I have a couple of other guys that come in, Brian Watson and Brian Lundstrom. And so when it's a full house, it's pretty packed in there. I'm working out of 750 square feet, you know? <laughs> you know? Yeah, definitely. But, but yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a really exciting time to be making guitars, you know? Definitely. And of course, as you said, you make a lot of other things too. Yeah. Yeah. All, uh, you know, basses. The other stuff is, it's more of sketching, 
you know, it's it's more of noodling, you mm-hmm. know, rather than a completely fully realized thing. Like when I make a a banjo, for example, I know that I'm not an expert at banjo making, but I, <laughs> I, I but because it's so weird, it's fun to do. Yeah, you know, the guys that really do that really do that well, and and I'm not getting in on their territory. It's mainly about the guitars, you know. Definitely. So, what's been the biggest change for you over the last thirty years in honing your your craft and your technique? Like, has there been one or two things that you that has changed what you've done? Definitely. When I started out, I had you know essentially I had a pocket knife, I had an exacto knife, I had a <laughs> coping saw, and I made my first guitar on my kitchen table. You know, I later had access to the wood shop in San Diego State when I was when I was studying art. So there are several developments. Like one point I, I got a router, you know, <laughs> and so, wow, now I can do all of this stuff. And then right. I got a better saw and now I can do all this stuff. Well, the big change lately has been digital fabrication or Ooh. digital design, you know, CAD stuff. Mm-hmm. So about eight years ago, I bought myself a CNC machine and the software, the, the CAD program and the CAM program. And for three years, it was just the most expensive shelf in the shop. It was just, <laughs> I could not figure out how to run it. It was, a, I didn't have time to go to school to, to learn how to do it. So I thought, well, you know what? I'm tired of seeing that du- thing getting dust. You know, it's most, it's, it's, you know, it's much as a car sitting there. Right. And so I challenged myself to draw something every day, no matter how small, because it had been super intimidating to turn on the machine and try to figure something out if I want to make a part. I would sit down at the computer and I would try to draw that part and I would get frustrated and behind me was a drill press and it's bandsaw and a sander and I'll just whip it out. <laughs> you know, I would just stop the computer stuff. I would go and whip it out. But after challenging myself to draw every day, so the first day it would be a, a simple part like a, like a jack plate, you know, which is basically, it's a flat plate that holds an input jack. Mm-hmm. So I drew that one day and the next day I extruded it. And then, and so while I have got a, a 3D part, you know, every day I would draw something more complicated and, and I would hit walls where I just could not go any further, but I'd have, I would create these crazy workarounds. I remember one time on the screen, I was trying to figure out how to do an angle. The headstock has a certain angle from the plane of the neck. And I took my draft, I could not figure out the command to, to do it a certain angle. So I took my drafting bevel gauge and put it on the screen of my computer <laughs> so I could figure, so I could make sure I was the right. <laughs> You know, so anyway, the, over the course of time, I taught myself how to run this thing, how to make parts. And it was the first time I'd really studied anything since I was in college. And I really geeked out and really got off on it. So, you know, after work each night, I would study YouTube videos. I would read and taught myself how to draw. And it completely changed and added to what I do. So now there were limitations before about what I would try because of the limitations of my tools, you know. Mm-hmm the radius of the cutter that I could use or whatever, whatever those limitations were. And well, now those were all scraped away. Wow. So these days I'm using a combination of the robotic digital machining to get very, very precise parts when it, when it needs to be. And then I hand shape that. So I've never lost any of the skills that got me to this point. I've only added a whole level of precision to what I've been doing you know, some people will use the digital machining to just reproduce and reproduce and re- cookie cutter kind of stuff. And that can be useful for making some repetitive parts, but I'm using it on an additive level. There's very seldom a guitar that's exactly the same as the last one mm. because there's the, the hand element. But that's been the biggest change in my methodology. 
So, you know, I've been doing it for 30 years and I'm, you know, 53 years old and, and at a certain while your, your elbow gets tired of <laughs> grinding out a, a, a neck, you know, that you've made a thousand times before. Mm-hmm. So if I can get the robot to kind of chew away most of that, 80% of it, and then I go in for the fine work, it's a really cool place to start. So I'm starting, I mean, I can take an ax and go and whack down a tree and make that into an instrument if I have to, if the, mm-hmm. power, if the power goes out, if the grid goes down. <laughs> but as long as I you know, have access to this technology, I'm going to use it. You know? Wow. And that brings up another thing, which is you guys use local products that you don't, if you don't make it yourself, you use something made in the U.S. As much as possible. I have, being in this business for so long, I have many, many friends who make hardware, they make pickups, they make, and so I try to use my friends' parts as much as possible. The woods, we try to use a lot of Oregon and Washington woods. You know, there's there's a lot of spruce up here. There's a lot of maple up here. So we try to use a lot of that. There's myrtle, there's mm-hmm. alder. A lot of the traditional guitar woods have, are becoming, well, they've been endangered. And, you know, the tropical hardwoods are, are getting harder and harder to get. And also there's new restrictions on them. The, the CITES mm-hmm. regulations, Rosewood just went into that category and they think ebony is going to go into that category. So we've been finding alternatives that are less destructive. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's kind of cool to, just like those customers are mine that play everything from Portland, well, I can build an instrument from mostly, you know, Pacific Northwest. And that's pretty cool. You know, <laughs> That is really cool. And it's regional, but. Yeah. And that's an important consideration. You know, I think when you're running a small business, it's like, why not do it the best you possibly can? Yeah. Yeah. It's always a, a striving for a higher level. I mean, that's what keeps it exciting and interesting. And, you know, there's a healthy competition between guitar makers and, uh, and I'll see what somebody does and, and I'll think, man, that is cool. I, I want to do something even cooler than that. You know? <laughs> so we're constantly outdoing each other, you know, so it's, it's pretty cool. One of my early jobs was at a repair shop in Long Beach, California called The World of Strings. And I met a guy there, uh, TV Jones. He was taking my bench as I left and he ended up starting a pickup company called, well, TV Jones is the name of the pickup. So he's up in Washington and we use a lot of his stuff. There are a lot, a lot of pickup makers. There are a lot of hardware makers and it's so hard to choose. They're all doing great stuff. And so it's so hard to choose. So a lot of times I'm choosing because I'm, these are my bros Mm -hmm. hanging out with these guys, you know, for years. And I try to give them the business, you know, first, even though there might be somebody on the East coast that's making a, a comparable thing. I'm going to go with my friend who's in Polsbo or, or Seattle or, or Tacoma or whatever. Yeah. Or Portland. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's kind of neat that we can do that. Yeah, it's really nice that we can do that. Well, I, I think on that note, <laughs> Saul Cole, thank you so much for being with me today. Thanks on the for having what? me. It's really exciting to be here. Thank you.
That was Specs by Lithix. You're listening to The Future of What? After the show, take a moment to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps people find the show, and we love hearing from you. When Kill Rockstars was looking for someone to take over our fulfillment operation, Merch Table stepped up to do the heavy lifting, moving our entire stock to their warehouse and helping us create merch our fans love. With Merch Table's support, we've been able to focus on the music and artists that matter to us. KRS loves Merch Table. See what they can do for your business at merchtable.com. You're listening to The Future of What. I'm talking to Chris Benson of Benson Amps. Chris, welcome to The Future of What. Thanks so much for having me. So today we're talking about gear that's manufactured in Portland. I think it's exciting to talk to people who've started their own companies manufacturing gear. It's not something that every single person does. So I'm interested to know your journey, like what brought you to manufacturing amps? Yeah, well, I guess it all started when I was a broke musician in Seattle. <laughs> I, I had always played, you know, kind of crappier amps. I, I did a lot, kind of a lot of lo-fi type stuff. And then at some point I just plugged into a Fender Bassman in some rehearsal space somewhere. And it was a tube amp, one of the first tube amps I had played or I guess noticed I noticed that it sounded really, really good. I was like, man, maybe maybe there is something to these guys who make fun of kind of chasing tones and <laughs> kind of getting obsessed with their gear. But before that, I thought it was just kind of nonsense. And so being kind of broke at the time, I decided to see if I could make an amplifier. And I did a bunch of research and, you know, there wasn't too many books, but the internet you know, forums all over the internet and just people with way too much time just putting up all this information, I was actually able to learn enough to put together an amplifier and it actually worked, which was kind of a miracle. <laughs> it, it fell apart constantly because I didn't really know how to solder. <laughs> but That's amazing. But that was kind of the beginning of that journey. And from there, I, I made another and another and I talked to my way into being a repair tech at Varellen Amps in Seattle. And I was just sitting there learning from, you know, Ben Varellen was this electrical engineer and I, you know, I didn't have any background in that. He kind of, kind of taught me pretty much all the analog stuff I would need to know to actually design tube amps. And then I brought a lot of research ability to the table just because I had a lot of time so, yeah, I, I just kind of developed my, my schema of what a good amplifier is there in Seattle for a few years. And then eventually we moved down to Portland to be closer to family, and I decided to start Benson Amps. And how long has it been now? We started in May of 2012. Wow. So kind of a while now. <laughs> yeah, amazing. And how many people do you employ now? I think it's eight right now. That's awesome. Yeah, eight including me. This show is a show about the music business, and partially it's about helping artists have sustainable careers, and partially it's about just sort of opening people's eyes to the jobs that exist in the music business. Mm -hmm. And I think this is one of multiple stories I've heard over the last few years of, you know, people who are musicians or people who are interested in music kind of having this career curve, like this left turn <laughs> in their career that they didn't really see coming, but that ended up being great. And then going on to create jobs for other people in the industry, which I think is really admirable and awesome. Well, thank you. So congratulations on that. Thanks. Yeah. I actually have a master's degree in education, huh. which I got while I was in Amptech, speaking of left turns. So yeah, I I never dreamed that I would end up, you know, actually employing people and being a boss and having my own company and stuff. So yeah, I have a PhD in anthropology, so <laughs> <laughs> we're in the same boat there. Like, 
lot of good that does me. But yeah, it's very exciting to be able to give back to the community in that way. So where is your company at right now in terms of your sales reach? Are you selling nationally at this point? Yeah, we're, we're actually selling internationally. We have dealers in Australia, France, Italy, probably 15 dealers here in the United States. And we're adding more all the time. So, And what's the appeal? Just this is like a niche market that I'm not super familiar with since I don't play guitar mm-hmm. or anything <laughs> anymore. Is the appeal of, of your amps over, let's say, just like whatever you can get in the local guitar center? Is it that they're handmade? Is it that they're, they've got a better tone? Like, what are your sales points? Yes. You know, they're, they're handmade. They're built really, really strong and well with a lot of attention to detail both sonically and and with the build and i also think people like to support local artisans doing their thing so you know they're not cheap not even a little i don't think i can afford one (laughs) (laughs) but but people seem to think it's worth it that's awesome and i assume i mean that's one thing because when i was touring in my band it was three women in a two-door ford explorer with full drum kit bass rig guitar amp and you know guitars there's a lot of moving around for amps like amps have to be really durable oh yeah that would be the number one thing i would say yep the moving around they heat up they cool down there's high voltages everywhere and they're owned by musicians which is probably the biggest (laughs) hazard so there's going to be a beer on top of them at some point in their life (laughs) oh yeah (laughs) if not all the time not all the time Yeah, totally. So yeah, obviously that's a that would be a big selling point for your amps is durability. And if they're handmade, then you guys can probably attest to that better than something that's a little bit more production line. Oh yeah. I mean, a big part of the design, how we actually build the amps came from my time as a, a repair tech, both in Seattle and here in Portland, where I would just see the same problems occurring over and over again, see the same weak points in amplifier construction. And I, I've worked really hard to make sure mine don't have those. So they're, they're pretty reliable. We don't, we don't get a whole lot of issues. That's awesome. What's your competition like in the country? Like, are there, how many other amp manufacturers are there? I would guess there's probably well over 2000. Oh, wow. And that's like, you know, a couple of years ago I had, I was working out of my garage with like two people. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, I guess, my actual competition is probably maybe 10, 10 companies out there that I can think of, you know, and we're, we're pretty much all friends, but they, they would be the competition. That's awesome. I think that's something really interesting too, because I'm on the board of this independent label trade association called A2IM, and that's been around for about 10 years. And I think 10 years ago, there was a real hard sell in trying to get independent labels to join the trade association because we're independent. We're also strongly independent. We're like, why would we need to come together? (laughs) That would be against our principles of being independent. But it is funny because I think it's, we learn so much from people who have the actual same job that we have, even if there are competitors. Oh yeah. I mean, there's a camaraderie there. You're going through the same thing basically. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you're butting heads with the same people, you know, whether they be dealers or vendors or whatever. So if I need a vent, I usually just call someone who has a competing amp company. <laughs> I'm good friends with, you know, Tim from Milkman Amps in San Francisco and Adam Grimm from Satellite. Those are kind of my two guys I call to, to bitch about stuff, too. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have friends who do the same thing that you do, I have to say, because they understand you a lot better than <laughs> most people. Oh, yeah. 
they understand your frustrations. So the other thing that we're talking about in this episode is the fact that Portland is very much sort of a maker's mecca right now in the music industry. We have a lot of gear being manufactured here. We have Mm -hmm. a legitimate, significant pressing plant in Cascade Record Pressing. We have a lot of the components of the music industry that are actually homegrown. So I think that is special for Portland to have, and I think it makes the community stronger. Have you been sort of feeling that, that there's more and more music business industry stuff going on like that, more makers? Yeah, absolutely. You see more all the time. And I don't really know why that is. It's not like Portland's a cheap place to live. And (laughs) I mean, it kind of used to be, but I think people just kind of want to come here and do that thing. Mm -hmm. And there is a little bit of infrastructure here for it too, which is really nice. Yeah. Tell us about the infrastructure. Well, I mean, you got a local parts guys here and there that kind of sell to everyone. And there's a lot of, you know, collaboration. Like I I actually go get my faceplates printed at Jacktoville Electronics, the Mr. Black Pedal Company. And, you know, we Tolex things for, you know, wrap and vinyl for a couple other amp companies here in town as well. So, I don't know, there's just a lot of cooperation. That's awesome. Well, there is, I mean, there's that whole like ADX sort of maker community collaboration and sense of community, I think, that does exist here. And there's been a lot of, you know, there was that Portland-made survey of how much the maker community contributes to the local economy, Mm -hmm. which is actually quite significant. I'm sure it is. So, and also, I mean, it's possible that this is just the kind of place that people go when they're like you and they're like, well, I don't know how to do this, but I think I want to try. (laughs) (laughs) There's a lot of people who seem to start that way. Yeah. I mean, I just moved here because my wife's folks Mm -hmm. are here, but... I guess I kind of lucked out and being being at the right place at the, the right, right time. time. Totally. Awesome. Well, Chris Benson, thank you so much for being with me today on The Future of What. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. you
That was No One Can Tell You by Cindy Wilson. And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Horse Feathers, Lithics, Cindy Wilson, and of course, our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by the Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what and sign up for our newsletter. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. I'm Portia Sabin, president of Kill Rockstars. See you next week.